uh, we talked about Acts 13 and 14, and we explored um, the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. Hopefully you remember that by now. And to quickly recap, uh, you know, we, we talked about some belief blockers that Luke uh, highlighted when he was talking about the trip that was going on. He really points out only three major incidences. He talks about places they visit, but highlights three major spots. And uh, so he talked about Cyprus. And uh, on the next slide, we'll have a map there. So on, on Cyprus there, he talked about uh, the influence of sorcery at work. Remember the um, Bar Jesus, the guy that was the sorcerer to the proconsul there? You know, and it, uh, you know, it shows us that even, you know, that we understand that then and today, there is a spiritual force at work which it doesn't like what is out there to take its place. If you think about that, the Holy Spirit wants to take resonance in the hearts of men. But Satan doesn't want to give up that territory, if you know what I mean. It's, he thinks it's his real estate. Jesus declares it his. And as you know, there is a battle going on for that fertile soil of a person's heart. And so we see sorcery at work all around us fighting against that sort of thing. Then they went further up north into Pisidian Antioch. That's in the northern region of what was called uh, Galatia, that area there. And, uh, and we saw the problem of exclusion. And uh, we see that the people of God, the synagogue rulers of that area, had made their expression of religion a very exclusive one. And it actually alienated the people around them. They even got jealous and angry when the city came to the synagogue to hear about their God, which is pretty shocking when you think about that particular thing. And then we had a regional backwater of, uh, of Lystra there. And, uh, and uh, we saw people who were responding to religion there with a great degree of superstition. And uh, their response to their gods at the time was to appease their gods. And, uh, and, but Paul came preaching about a Jesus who came not to earth to be appeased and to find a person to, you know, not to find a home to dwell in, but to actually redeem mankind. And uh, there's a big difference right there in the gods that we know and the God that they know, Right? You know, there's redeemed. There's a God who desires to be appeased, or there's a God who desires to redeem. Which God do you embrace? Which God do they embrace? I know which one I embrace. The one who came to redeem. In the wake of that trip, we see the the Church of Antioch is rightly rejoicing at what has happened. But as we go into chapter 15, we see that there's a bit of a, a dent being put into their celebrations. And, uh, you know, is it an unnecessary one? Maybe, maybe not. But we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 15. It's on the screen for you to follow if you need it. And uh, we'll start at verse 1. We've got a bit of Bible today, but uh, we'll go through it in bite-sized chunks so that I get it as I'm speaking it. <laughs> so, and, uh, so that should be good. So we'll start at verse 1. Certain individuals came from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they, were, they told how the Gentiles were being converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. We'll stop there for a minute. Jerusalem is still taking a keen interest in the growth of the church. And this church was now extending well outside of the Palestine region where Israel was located 
and has now gone into the you know southern parts of Asia Minor there and into Europe itself. There's some actual decent inroads going on. The Gentile world is being reached en masse, and Paul and Barnabas have kicked some big goals for the kingdom of God in their travels. Jerusalem had had a much more limited experience of their growth as a church. And you can see that it's actually starting to affect their theology a little bit here. You know, there are many verses in the Old Testament which point to the Jews being used to reach the world for the glory of God. You know, the Pharisees and all the religious leaders believed that that would occur by proselytizing on the basis of their nation and their institutions. And while many of these religious leaders are coming to accept Jesus as their Messiah and are converting to Christianity, they're not quite seeing the reason to change that view at any time in the near future. They're still holding that mindset that Israel will be the place of change and and that what they have in place is still going to be the agent of change despite what Jesus did. Now the Jerusalem church is made up of Jews and proselytes and others which were called God-fearers, people who were not Jewish but remained close to them to somewhat acknowledge their God. Their first-hand experience, the only first-hand experience of a Gentile conversion the Jerusalem church has documented at this stage is the one of Cornelius. Do you remember that story? Cornelius in, you know, trouble is, that had occurred by the time we get to this part of the letter. That was about 10 years ago. Can you imagine having one person from outside of your faith coming to Christ in 10 years? That's, a, that's, that's the kind of, Jerusalem is kind of slipping into that mindset at the moment. In the Jerusalem church, the church is growing somewhat smoothly because Jews are making an easy transition to Christianity because it completes their established understanding of God. And that sounds a little bit like sometimes us in the church today. There are many in church this morning who have grown up in Christianity all their life. Is that true? Put your hand up if you've been a Christian all your, all your life, you know? You know, that's a, that's, that's a massive part. In this church, we've even got legends who have lived more than 50 years of faith. They have 50 years, half a century of faith under their belt, and then some. That's pretty awesome. That's, that's huge to celebrate. Some of us are second or third or fourth generation Christians. I personally am not. I'm a first generation guy, and I came to Christ as a teenager. But for you guys, it would have been a very natural decision because it was a natural fit for your already established understanding of God that was brought up around you in your home. You would have heard about God all your life. You would have, would have been in church a fair bit. You would have been exposed to it all. And just saying yes to Jesus was a natural progression because of what you already had established. That's kind of how the Jerusalem church was growing. They had a God awareness. Now they just made Jesus part of that. Trouble is... There was that church up the road in Antioch. That church. And they had a totally different dynamic going on. When many of the Antioch church decided to follow Jesus, it would be against the grain of the religious ideals that they would have previously held. Some came from Judaism, but many did not. In fact, their previous religious expression, if any, would have been quite carnal in its application. In fact, quite disastrous in how they actually applied their religious orders. But as they come to Christ, we clearly see their passion for serving Jesus was unquestionable. And they're even now leading the way for the rest of the known world to receive the gospel message. The Gentile church is now becoming the majority population of the church. But this prompts the summon Jerusalem to take action. And we're starting to read about this now. 
It seems that the most conserv- the more conservative believers think this new breed out there in Antioch have somehow missed the sacredness of the origins of their faith. So a delegation has taken it upon themselves to correct these Gentiles in the true practice of their faith and to restore a bit of sacred Judaism back into the Gentile church. It seemed to be a widespread campaign as well. We know that the letter to the Galatians was written at about the same time this stuff was going on. And we know that a delegation has not only gone to Antioch, but has gone to other places that Paul and Barnabas have already visited. And the letter to the Galatians is actually addressing visitors of a same nature going to that region. And Paul is writing into that situation. The people that are teaching this stuff in Antioch are also bringing the other churches in Galatia and Asia Minor into the same scrutiny. The primary role of the book of Galatians is to address that issue. So if you're reading in your devotional readings, it's about this point of Acts that is going on there. The doctrine of these visitors is clear to us here. Basically what they're saying is Jesus is awesome, but you cannot be saved unless you do all the Jewish religious things as well. Starting with circumcision. Can you imagine that altar call? Can you imagine that public appeal? Can you imagine a big mega church and you know all these people come, you know, you want to give Jesus your life? Yeah, come on forward. You know, and instead of we've got a special gift for you if you just go into that little room and we've got some people who want to talk to you, that would be a pretty nasty situation. No, just you know, we got some doctors in there with a scalpel. Yeah, you know, that's that's pretty full-on stuff here. It's a doctrinal stance here that causes severe disruption in the church and even potential division amongst its leaders. If you read Galatians, you'll actually see the nature of division that was going on there. These Jews were making a strong and convincing case, and it was enough for the experienced Pharisee in Paul to actually go to Jerusalem to try and get this thing cleared up. Even he would have been seeing some sense of where they were coming from, but he obviously has a first-hand experience of seeing the other things happen around him. But I love here how the heart of the church leadership at the time is to keep the church on the same page. There's no divisions and breaking up based on, on, on beliefs. They, they're still the heart of the church even there is to try and be on the same page and be on one place. Take the church universal in one direction. I love that heart. The pharisaical concept of God had a somewhat right tone. God was indeed holy and righteous. They had a standard to follow. Through their understanding of God, they had a moral and ethical code and a lifestyle to follow. At this time, there's no written New Testament in circulation, and the only written word of God was the law and the prophets. Did Jesus override all that? Was serving Jesus to be at the expense of the law? Were there parts of the law that could be ignored and others embraced? Surely if it's good for one thing, it's good for the lot, right? Even if it means pants and a scalpel. What did these new Gentile believers need to know about the Jewish Old Testament? These are the questions that are pondered as they converse in the topic, and their text picks this conversation up from verse 6 of our text. So we'll keep reading as we go here. Let's go to verse 6 of our text. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. 
Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling them about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles before, uh, through them. When they finished, Jesus spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, and that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. That's a quote from Amos. Things known long from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. I'll stop there for a minute. Now, what we're reading about here is actually the first major theological discussion of the early church. There were a number of these over a few hundred years which deliberated over major doctrinal issues. And uh, things like the deity of Christ had to be brought to light and discussed and put into, in, in a statement at meetings at councils like this particular one. Uh, this was the first of its kind. And the creeds that many of us know today are actually the ones that we know by heart and we probably learned in Sunday school and stuff like that are actually the result of many of these councils that occurred. The first Jerusalem council was centered on the place of the law of Moses in the life of a non-Jewish Christian and it posed a very good question for the church going forward. How does a Jew and a Gentile coexist in theology and fellowship within the church of Jesus Christ? How do the old schoolers and new schoolers coexist? How do the people who are new to this faith and how do the absolute seasoned people coexist in the life of the church? Now, a Jewish minority group was calling for it to be totally their way. And in today's church world, we actually have to form the word for that particular agenda. Today, we know that word as legalism. Legalism is an erroneous stance because it takes the old laws and makes them the completion of the work of Christ. Now, that should sound wrong to you. As a result of doing that, it renders the work of the cross as an insufficient means of full salvation. In today's church, we see legalistic thinking. It's easy to slip into that legalistic mindset. And we all slip in and out of it from time to time. And you see it heaps. You know, here's some examples. You know, churches. You know, when you walk into a church and the Ten Commandments or nine and a half in some church contexts, are on the wall, but nothing pertaining to love, grace, or forgiveness is found to complement it, we have a bit of an issue there. When we talk about our faith as a list of things we do, rather than the central thing we cling to, we have issues. When we evaluate our Christianity by our works, rather than our identity in Christ, and especially when we feel morally superior as a result, we have a problem. When we pursue rules on human strength rather than righteousness divinely given. When we point to the rule book, get our Bibles and point to the rule book, rather than point to the cross in our witnessing. 
These are the times when legalism is making its presence felt in and through us in our lives. The truth of the matter is that all of God's promises made to Abraham and David were actually fulfilled by the arrival of Jesus Christ on the earth. And all of Moses' laws were completed by the work of Jesus Christ, culminating in the cross. And when Jesus said, it is finished at the cross, he was referring not about my life, he was saying about the laws of Moses and and the Old Testament prophecies and everything. Everything is finished now, when I breathe my last. He completed the law of Moses. And as we read about what these early apostles are saying as they grapple with the question at hand, they're actually able to point out here that the law of Moses, in comparison to Christ, the law of Moses actually had a bit of a downside to it. Peter refers to it as a yoke or a burden. That's the thing they stuck on oxen to make him go on a straight line. The yoke or a burden that even the most devout Jew could not carry a full commitment. And James, this is not the beheaded one we heard about a few weeks ago, this is actually James the Just, the half-brother of Christ. James backs this up by calling it a thing that would add difficulty to a Gentile's Christian faith. They were both right. The law pointed to the holy standard of God and it pointed to man's inability to carry it out. The law pointed to God's righteousness and it also pointed to our inability to attain righteousness by any action we take. It was the cross that gives us access to the righteousness that only God can give and we can't earn it. The work of Christ was the masterstroke by God where he initiated the redemption process of mankind. He willingly went to the cross to pay for all the penalties that came with breaking the law that the people were given through Moses. After his resurrection, we see that he went ahead of the Jerusalem church and he ordained both Jews and Gentiles to receive the salvation this cross brings. He did this even though the Gentiles were not sitting under his written law. And he was working in uncircumcised hearts and filling them with his Holy Spirits. Hearts that Peter notes God had full knowledge of and still desired to reside within them anyway. The Greek word actually, there's a Greek word in Peter's comments here. When he says, who knows the hearts, it's actually what it says. It's cardionostes, heart knower. I said that in my prayer. It was just a real awesome thing to point out there. What a way to think of Jesus right there. The heart knower. The one who knows the deepest parts of us. All of this is now being testified to be true through the words of Peter, Paul and Barnabas in front of the whole Jerusalem church. And in the face of the presence of legalism, the church now brings in a new word to describe the work of the cross as our only source of salvation. And from here at this Jerusalem council, we begin to see a doctrinal word called grace. This is only a word, this is a word only fleetingly used earlier in, in Acts, but it's now clearly spoken of as a doctrinal entity. From here, it would become more commonly used in Paul's travels and would be used extensively to explain the gospel in his letters. Read Romans, read Galatians. Read the work of Paul and you'll see the word grace come over and over and over again. Read John 30 years after that and you'll see that Jesus is introduced as the one bringing grace. 
it became a central part of their understanding. Grace is unmerited favour, or essentially deliberate favour extended to known lawbreakers. And every person on the planet, Jews and Gentiles alike, fitted into that category. From the Jerusalem Council onwards, we've come to understand that we are saved by grace and not of works. In other words, we are saved not because of how good we think we are. I don't look in the mirror and go, I'm saved because look at me. No, we're saved because of how good he truly is. Now, did that mean the Gentile church was free to conduct itself any way it liked? Go ahead, Grace, go for it. Well, we know in Romans 6 that Paul actually addresses that question, right? Well-known verse, Sin no longer shall be your master because you're not under the law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? It's a rhetoric question and he answers it really clearly, by no means. If you've got an older translation, it will say certainly or absolutely not. Being free from the constraints of the Mosaic law meant living under the rule of he who completed it. Jesus himself said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to complete it. He didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. He, he taught from the Old Testament, and he brought clarity to it. He taught about living a holy and right life. He taught about following him and being like him and living under his yoke, not the yoke of the law. Even today, the law exists in our hands in the Old Testament. And it's there because it reminds us and shows us how fallen we really are. The early church fathers were right in publishing the Old Testament with the New for that reason. The Jerusalem church was also aware of the upside of the law as well. It gave good, clean and holy living standards to any follower of the Lord. Standards they saw fit to summarize in the letter to the church at Antioch. And we pick that letter up in verse 22 of our text here. It says, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers at Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Wow. The Gentile church, brothers. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds with what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So they went off, were sent off and went down to Antioch and were gathered, and where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. And after spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Instead of having a burden put upon them, they received a message of gladness. 
these four items of abstinence have been interpreted in a number of ways. Some religious orders sum them up as idolatry, immorality and murder. And they say that the reference to blood there is actually taken in the most extreme case. You know, in ancient Jewish and other religious circles, this was seen somewhat as the big three sins. And that's a pretty good way of looking at it. It's a good way to sum up. It's a pretty good moral code to work by. A tamer version talks about the way these four things were outward things that if avoided would cause both Jews and Gentiles to coexist in fellowship in the church. And it wouldn't cause offence to the most devout Jews of their church setting. And this is certainly consistent with Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 8 about eating food tainted by idols and the offence it might cause to others, in particular what Paul calls weaker people when it comes to their convictions. It's a good way of looking at the letter for back then too. But as a citizen of Wangaratta in 2013, some of these things just have no bearing because my local butcher on Murdoch Road doesn't have a shrine of Diana in it where the meat has been sitting before it's packaged. Far as, not even like Sydney where there's a Buddha in every butcher store. So if you're a brand new believer today and you've come into the church setting and you're new to Christianity and you're someone who wants just a basic moral code to follow as we embrace this faith. Yes, and it says, by the way, it actually says, you know, let's give the basics now because if they want to know more, there's a synagogue on every corner. They can go and hear more about the word of the Lord. So they weren't throwing it out. They were just saying, let's get the basics right first. And if you want to know more, you want to embrace more, but start with the grace thing first. There's two quick thoughts I want to do to summarize this letter that they sent to Antioch. One, keep Jesus as your number one thing. If we can read this letter, we can see two lines of thought. And the first one is keep Jesus as number one. Put Jesus first in everything. If you do that, you'll find a lot of things come into alignment anyway. If you're a new believer and going, where do I start? Put Jesus number one in everything. Start with any, you know, fire out. Even if it's cornflakes versus Nutri-Grain. <laughs> if you're just starting out, you may as well, you know, just get in the practice of it. Jesus, which one? I'll put you first. Which one? <laughs> I'm, I'm being facetious there, but you know what I mean? Just start with simple things and keep Jesus front and center. The world that the Jerusalem church was writing to was highly idolatrous. Their religious world was somewhat superstitious, as we've spoken about before, but it was also quite debauched as well. Pretty much every butcher had shrines where they offered meat to a god before it was sold. Blood was used in pagan rituals, and the way meat was killed and prepared had lots to do with pagan and idol practices. Not only that, there would be crazy feasts in the temples, which would lead to drunkenness and crazy immoral behavior, all in the name of worship. It was wise for the church to write this in because Christians were called to separate themselves from that sort of thing. Jesus is a gentleman, however. And, there's, and if there's other things in, his heart, in our heart, he's not going to barge his way in. He's only going to come in if we ask, if we invite. But our faith means keeping him front and center. In fact, our whole faith hinges on keeping Jesus front and center. Anything else that divides our heart relegates Jesus to a distant second. Keep Jesus first at all times because our salvation depends on nothing else. It's in Christ alone that we're saved. That's the thrust of this message that was being coming out here. So keep him front and center because that is the source of your salvation. And second, pursue moral purity. When the church of Jerusalem wrote this, they had a pretty clear picture in mind. They still had the Old Testament law to refer to, and Leviticus 18 has a pretty extensive list of bedroom taboos you know, that we should do well to acknowledge. 
I will hazard a guess that we that would have been their source, because all four abstinences seem to come from that portion of text, Leviticus 17 and Leviticus 18. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that while all other sin are doing external damage, sin, sexual, sin of a sexual nature is doing lots of harm on the inside, and often more than we really know. Again, that's something for another time. We will look at 1 Corinthians. I will say that over my time in ministry, this has been one of the most damaging areas of life that, to people I've been ministering to. Both Christians and not, where people have got this area wrong my goodness, the damage that it has done and for many it's no coming back. If they tell a lie, they can bounce back, but if they get caught in this sort of stuff, there's almost like this feeling of condemnation that they can never get back to where they were. Be aware that the damage of of this, pursuing moral purity really does matter. If I were to offer any counsel to a new believer today, I would actually point them towards those two things based on the scripture we have here today. Keep Jesus front and center, keep yourself morally pure then the rest you can work out over time. Anything else after the matter is actually a matter of conscience and for the heart knower, the cardionostes himself, Jesus, to sort out with the individual. So how do we bring something like this to a close? And Jenny, we'll get singing in a moment. Well, I'm going to give a few quick thoughts for personal examination. So why don't we close our eyes where it's us, us and God? Or just go to that place and close your eyes, do whatever is comfortable for you. And let's allow Jesus to speak as I ask a few questions. And I'm going to come in a first-person thing. Am I? I'm going to make this personal for us all. Let's think about these things as we go into time of worship afterwards. Am I living under the burden of the law or the freedom of grace? Am I so consumed by keeping the rules of my religion rather than resting in the grace of my Redeemer? If that's the case, we need to allow Jesus to help us to realign our vision of that. What burdens am I putting on people around me? Is my legalism repelling people or is my grace attracting Is there a mix of both in there that needs to be refined? Is my gospel message Jesus alone or is it Jesus plus? Am I new in my faith or still trying to work it out? If so, what things are competing with putting Jesus first in my life? And what influences are out there which will compromise my moral purity? How can I safeguard myself from those things in my life? What can you do to keep yourself safe? I'll give 30 seconds for God to perhaps speak to some people here and, or highlight things in our lives and then we'll pray. But let's be quiet in the Lord for a minute. <laughs> 